God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the tremendous and amazing privilege that we have of addressing you, first of all, as Father. That it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you saved us and brought us into your family so that we can cry out as Jesus did, Abba, Father. That we can address you as our Papa, who loves us and gave his Son for us. And Father, we thank you for the transformation that is brought about by your Holy Spirit, uh, who saves from sin and death and hell and offers us glory by grace alone. And Father, we pray uh, for our service today. We pray that, that above all things, that Christ would be exalted and made known and celebrated here today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to start into the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13, uh, the very last chapter in the book. Uh, we've got this and just a couple more weeks after this, and we'll be done with Hebrews, uh, which is kind of bittersweet for me because I love the book of Hebrews, but all good things must come to an end. Uh, and we'll be on to uh, a new series talking about uh, the big questions, the big questions that people have about life, uh, big questions that people have about Christian faith. And so that'll be an excellent opportunity uh, for you to, uh, all, to not only be equipped yourself to answer some of these questions uh, as people ask you as you talk with them about Jesus, but also to uh, bring someone, maybe a family member or a friend or a co-worker, uh, who has some of these questions that they have, they, they're not a Christian yet, and they, they want to know answers to some of these things. Um, you know, things like, is the Bible really true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, if you believe the Bible, does that make you anti-gay? You know, these kinds of things we're going to deal with. And, um, uh, and so if you've, if you've got some uh, some friends or family members or co-workers who have those kind of questions, uh, invite them to, uh, to church and to hear some answers from the scriptures on those things. Uh, it'll be an exciting thing. But today, um, why don't you just imagine for just a minute that you are a Christian who is right now living under persecution like our brothers and sisters uh, in Syria today or in uh, parts of Iraq, uh, that you are living under persecution. Uh, the Jewish Christians to whom Hebrews was originally written were under persecution. And imagine that 15 years ago you had been forced from your home with only the possessions you could carry left to you. Imagine that some members of your family, your church family, perhaps including you, had been flogged or imprisoned back then. And then imagine that in the intervening years, the pressure backed off and you had been able to more or less return to life as normal. And you'd been able to rebuild and put things back together and maybe regain some of your former possessions and, and, and your former house even. And you've been able to get back to the way things were, but now you can see that persecution is ramping up again and the enemies are gathering. 
And if that were you, if that were our church's situation, I'll bet a lot of us would be thinking just like the recipients of the book of Hebrews were thinking. We would groan like they did. We would cry out to God in painful prayer. And we would wonder in our heart of hearts if Jesus was really worth all of this. I mean, I already did this once, Lord, and now here it comes again. And we would be tempted like they were, I think, to just leave the whole thing aside and go back to my old life, which wasn't so painful, wasn't so hard, and I could just fit into the culture I was part of before and escape from all this. And as you know, that's the reason the book of Hebrews was written. The apostle who wrote it composed it so that for all time there would be an answer to everyone who struggles with the temptation uh, through persecution and difficulty to just chunk it all and go back to their old life. And so for 12 chapters, we've gotten... uh, all kinds of high theology about the superiority of Jesus and every aspect to everything that they used to believe in their old life. And we've also gotten a number of pastoral warnings and exhortations not to walk away from this because Jesus is the very best thing that you could possibly possess in this life, and to walk away from and abandon Him has eternal consequences. Amen? And, and so for 12 chapters, he's been giving us theology and exhortations and encouragement and warnings and telling us, you need to persevere. And now we come to chapter 13. And he more or less assumes, since they're still reading, you must have decided to persevere. And if you're going to persevere, and since you've decided to persevere, here's how to live out your recharged and encouraged faith in Christ in the teeth of persecution. That's chapter 13. That since you've decided to persevere, here's what to do next. Since you've decided not to abandon the faith, but to pursue Christ, even if it costs you everything, even if it costs you your life, and, and so the Holy Spirit speaks to us in chapter 13 uh, through, through the apostle to the Hebrews about how to have a fearless faith in hard days. So I want to show you the first six verses of this uh, here this morning in the time that we have remaining to us. Uh, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous." Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, If you look at your outline there on the back of your bulletin, what you'll see is that I've entitled the first section of this, 
live boldly as a Christian in the world. And I think that these verses, these first five verses, are some amazing instruction because while you and I might expect some sort of big speech here, now that you have heard all of these things, you know, one of the great scenes in recent movies is the one uh, at the, in the last movie of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And you've got King Theoden on horseback and all the riders of Rohan, the Rohirrim, are going to charge into the teeth of Sauron's army. And he makes this speech, and here they go, riding down the hill, right? And it's great. I love that, okay? Every part of my masculine soul just goes, yes, right? <laughs> and he, they charge, death, right? And they're, you know, they, they ride into it knowing that a lot of them are going to die, but that if they're going to die, they're going to go down swinging, right? And you would expect maybe in chapter 13 that that's what you would get, a big, you know, or like a Henry V on Crispin's Day, right, out of Shakespeare, right? That many who are now abed in England will hold themselves, hold their manhood cheap whilst any stands and speaks of their valor on St. Crispin's Day, right? I mean, this is a great speech, right? They're ready to, you're ready to go to war with him when you, uh, when you hear it, right? But that's not what Hebrews says. And nevertheless, he is encouraging bold living as a Christian. Let me just walk it through with you. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. In other words, at a time when being associated with your brother and sister Christians might very well be the reason why you get flogged or imprisoned or killed, don't stop loving each other. You know, I know some friends that are missionaries, and every now and then they will have some missionary friends that serve with them get rounded up by the secret police. And they'll get taken in for interrogation and questioning. And everybody in the Christian community has to consciously say to themselves, don't pull away. Don't withdraw from them. Draw near. And, but the natural temptation is, ooh, ooh, Charlie got snagged. <laughs> um, uh, let's not hang out at their house anymore. Let's not take them any food because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. But that's, what, but that's in total contrast to what Hebrews says. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't stop meeting together. Don't stop helping each other. Don't pull away from your church family, but stand with them. Don't just stick your head down and hope the storm passes, in other words. Pull together and stand one with another. Let brotherly love continue. You know, love is not simply, you know, some emotion that we feel. It's a choice to respond to other people in their need in a way that puts their needs first. Amen? And what do you need if you're arrested or interrogated or been flogged? You need help. You need very practical encouragement. We're still with you. We still love you. We're going to walk with you through this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
And hospitality, you know, we think hospitality is like, you know, we'd have the hospitality industry, right? That's the restaurants and hotels of the world. That's the hospitality industry. But biblically, hospitality means welcoming strangers into your life. It means things like feeding the orphan and welcoming him or her into your home. It means caring for homeless people. It means going to Paradise Park and extending grace to those people, as Cheryl and her folks are doing with uh, Adopt-A-Blog. It means um, providing shelter to homeless people, etc. It means taking care of the needs of people who, without the expectation that they will ever be able to repay you. That's biblical hospitality. Loving people who most likely will not and cannot pay you back. And the apostle reminds us in verse 2 here that some people simply by doing this have been providing hospitality to angels in disguise like uh, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18. You can go back and read it. They don't know who is showing up at their door, but they see three guys wandering across the desert, and Abraham says, hey, Sarah, make, set some extra plates. Make some more food. There's three guys out here wandering around. I'm inviting them to stay and eat with us. And they don't know who it is. You find out later it's two angels and the Lord God himself showing up at their tent. Right? Now, wouldn't that be something, Right? I mean, I'm not prepared to have the president come visit, right? (laughs) But nevertheless, Abraham hosts two angels and the God of the universe. And can that kind of thing still happen today? I have no idea. But the, the apostle says, yes, that you may well meet some stranger and they may not be what they appear to be, which is just another mere human. They may actually be an angel in disguise. Verse 3, remember those in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Again, the most natural thing in the world when somebody goes to prison, somebody gets the wrong kind of attention from law enforcement is to just be like, stay away. I don't want, you know, we don't flog people in this country anymore. But in a lot of the other countries of the world, uh, both then and now, they do. And you can get beaten. I mean, I'm not talking about you got a few whacks with a paddle at the principal's office. I'm talking beaten within an inch of your life. Beaten by somebody who beats you until they get tired of beating you. And then comes back and beats you some more. And that happens all over the world for the cause of Christ hasn't happened yet here but one day it could and if it ever does and if you if you wind up having to go to prison because you put your faith in jesus guess what you're going to want you're going to want your pastor you're going to want your deacons you're going to want your elders you're going to want your friends your church family to show up on the other side of that glass and pick up the phone 
and say, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. How can I help you? How can I take care of your family while you're here? Amen? And that's what the apostle is encouraging people to do. But guess what? It's a risk to do that. If it is illegal to be a Christian as it was in the days this letter was written, then to go and visit someone who is one at the prison is, guess what? To identify yourself as someone who is one of these people. And to run the risk that you're going to get the same kind of treatment. But he says, do it because you also are in the body. Does he mean physical body, that you also have a physical body? No, he means that you're part of the body of Christ. And you ought to treat other people in the circumstances they're in how you would want to be treated when, if you were in their shoes, which one day you may well be. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, why does he include that? Let me tell you what I think the reason he includes that is. I think it's because when things get hard, when, when, when life just all explodes around us and we are going through really difficult times do you know what we're tempted to do we're tempted to rationalize sin and we're tempted even sometimes in our depravity to think that well because god has allowed this into my life then i am owed this over here that he has forbidden and we start to just rationalize away the fact that what we're doing is wicked And one of the most tempting varieties of sin, let's face it, is sexual sin. It's a very tempting thing. And so he, he identifies two categories, two big categories of sexual sin. He says, um, God will judge the sexually immoral. That's, in other words, people who are engaged in all the various types and kinds that there are of non-marital sexual relationships. And also, in case you are married, the adulteress. So anybody who is stepping out on their husband or wife or whatever with someone else, whether that person is real or virtual. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. And he says, you're to uphold and honor marriage, and you're to honor also the marriage bed. In other words, the marriage bed is not something which is dirty or defiled or uh, unholy. In fact, it is something that God blesses and is honored by as it is enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so you are to uh, uphold these things. And you're to uh, enjoy the purity of relationships that God has established. And in verse 5, we get this instruction. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Now, I feel like I don't need to explain that verse, but let me explain it anyway, just to be really clear. Don't worship money and stuff. Don't spend your life in the acquisition of things as if they are the point. 
Because guess what? As the bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. And there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. Amen? <laughs> All right? <laughs> it's all staying here. And in fact, it's not even staying. Because as Peter says, the present heavens and the present earth are reserved for fire. It will be consumed at the end of all things. Everything that is down here is not eternal. And he says, keep yourselves therefore free from the love of money. Don't spend your life in a never-ending state of I want. Now, this is tempting for me on a number of levels. You know, I want a new truck. I want a new shotgun, always, right? They all come out with new models, and I'm like, ooh, I want one, right? Um, you know, they come out with new rifles. Ooh, I want one. Uh, there's always new, um, new, new things I'd like to go and hunt and, and eat and so forth, right? And, uh, and so you can spend your life doing that. But guess what? It's not much of a life. Because as soon as you acquire whatever that thing is that you think is going to be the ultimate in providing you happiness, guess what? After you have it, do you get additional happiness into your life? No. If I buy a new truck, what's going to happen? I'm going to have additional bills. <laughs> right? And then someday, one of my kids is going to ride their bike too close to it and put a big scratch down the side, and I'm going to go, Ugh! right? Or it's going to get hailed on, or it's going to, whatever, you know, birds will poop on it, or whatever, you know, there'll be terrible things that happen to this thing that's giving me happiness, right? And I'll cry out about how horrible it is, right? And God has provided, according to the Scripture here, enough for us. He gives us everything that we need and so much of what we want. I love when Mark says that when he prays. I don't know how many of the rest of you listen when he prays, but Mark says that a lot when he prays. He says, God, you've given us everything we need and so much of what we want. And that's true. And so he says, be content with what you have. Now these things, again, may not sound exactly like the bold Christian life to you. But let me assure you that they are. They don't sound bold to us because they are the kinds of things that ought to characterize a Christian who is normal. These are not exemplary things. These aren't things that are out of the ordinary or that should be out of the ordinary for a Christian person, right? Is there anything on this list that was like, huh, so I didn't know God would expect me to do that. I mean, like that came way out of left field, right? Love each other. Uh, be sexually pure. Don't be a greedy person, <laughs> you know? Uh, these are not big surprises, Right? But guess what? If you actually live out your faith in these kinds of ways, guess what you will do? You will stick out like a sore thumb in a surrounding culture in which none of these things are normal. None of these things are normal. Yeah, let me give you just a quick example. If I had told you 10 years ago 
that marriage is between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship for life, you'd have gone, uh-huh, and your point is what? You'd have looked at me like, why are you needing to remind us of that, pastor, right? And if I had said to you, only guys who have XY chromosomes should use the men's room, and only people who have XX chromosomes should use the ladies' room, you would have gone, Yes, this is obvious. Why are you underlining the point? And so my point is this, that these kind of just ordinary Christian things are going to increasingly in our culture stick out and look like a very bold outward Christian life. Because because what is normal in the church looks insane to those outside it. And it's going to require boldness to live this way. To live consistent with your faith. And in order to live boldly, you're going to need to remember the last part of verse 5 and verse 6, that Jesus is with us in every circumstance. Look at the second half, verse 5. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. These are two quotes from elsewhere in the Scripture. They are uh, quoting, uh, the first one, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, and the second one is from Psalms 118, verse 6. And both of them are reminders that nothing happens to us. Nothing happens to us. That is not first filtered through the lovingly sovereign fingers of the God who loves us and bought us with the blood of Christ. That everything that happens in your life, everything that happens to, in, to you in your life, if we're talking serious illness, if we're talking issues that you have that will not go away with your health, if we're talking a, uh, a child who dies, if we're talking a marriage that explodes, if we're talking a job that you loved, that paid for your life, that now you have lost and you don't know where you're going to get another one? If you're talking the death of a spouse with whom you have spent the last 67 years, whatever you're talking about, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're talking prison, you're talking beatings, you're talking humiliation and death, Jesus says, I will never leave you. If you, if you like to write in your Bible, write in that. Underline that. Circle that. Put stars around that. Because I can just tell you that when the chips are down... That is the thing you will need to remember. That Jesus is with you. I went to see a surgeon this week to see if I could have an abscess that I have drained. 
And he told me, no, you're going to have to live with that as an after effect of your Crohn's for the rest of your life. And I looked at him like I'm looking at you right now. You are got to be kidding me. So I'm just going to have to just take antibiotic and try to fight infection for the rest of my life the best I can. And he's like, yep, I'm sorry. And as I drove home from that appointment, I got a, I got a, I got a text from Rick Rosetto who was asking me, so how did the appointment go? And I, I confess, I was not precisely a man of faith at that moment. I was saying to the Lord, would it be too much to ask that I could just have healing on this? And then I went to preach my sermon and to write my message. And I'm reading, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with the life that you have. I am with you always. The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? And you know what? It hadn't been easy. But I remember this passage. The Lord is with me. And he is with you too. Every single minute of every single day. Matthew 28, 20. I don't like how it's translated in most Bibles. Because it says, I am with you always. That's what people, how people usually translate it. But what it literally says in Greek there is, I am with you every day. And I have found that enormously comforting. Because I, what I'm tempted is to think is this, God, I know you're with me always, but does that mean right now? What about today, Lord? How about, uh, is today one of the days that you're with me? And I remember, I am with you every day. Every day. And because He is with us, we can live in a way that stands out. We can live in a way that draws persecution. We can live in a way that might cause us to take some shots and even die. Because we know the Lord is with us. And at the end of the day, if I die, I die to the Lord. And if I live, I live for the Lord. And I'm going to glory either way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that through Jesus Christ we have cleansing from, from sin, from its power over us, its penalty that we are due uh, from the things that we have done and the things that we will do because we are sinners. You have redeemed us and bought us by the blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, and You have washed us and cleansed us and made us new. And as a result, you promise that you will be with us in every single circumstance, on every single day of our lives, until the day when Christ comes and we see you face to face forever and ever.
And we will not have to wonder then if you are with us because we will see you. And Father, we thank you for the encouragement we get today from your word that we can live boldly in the culture that we're in because even as things get dark and hard and challenging and difficult, whatever circumstance we're in, you're with us. You're with us. And you love us. And for that reason, we proclaim your greatness and your excellence, and we wonder at your love for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.